Well, thank you this morning for your worship. Um, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We ended in chapter 2, uh, verse 10, and this morning we're going to walk through the remainder of the chapter. Um, let's begin looking in, in verse 11. I'm going to read it for us. I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll just get right after it. But in 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 11, he says this, And Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that now that you would um, teach us and you would change us. We know you are here with us in this room. And so God, we pray that you would have your way in these next few moments. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This past week... um, some of you may have heard this story in the news, uh, but there was a lady that was identified, I'm not sure where she was from, uh, but she decided to go to bed and she decided to wear her contacts when she fell asleep. Now, I used to do that in high school. I would just sleep in my contacts and I would wake up. It's partly why I'm partially blind, I think, at this point, and I'm, I'm reaping what I sow, right? Well, she goes to bed and wakes up in the middle of the night. And what happens when you fall asleep with your contacts in? You wake up and your eyes, like it's blurry, your eyes are really dried out, you can't see. So what she does is she grabs the bag that's next to her nightstand, she grabs the bag, she fumbles around in the bag, pulls out a bottle of, of eye drops and puts them in her eye. Within seconds, she realizes that she has just made a terrible mistake. You see, instead of grabbing the, the Visine or the NAFCON or whatever it is that she was trying to use, she unintentionally grabbed nail glue, glue. And she put drops of glue in her eye, thinking they were eye drops, and her eyes began to seal shut. Now she freaks out, obviously, who wouldn't? Screams at her husband to call 911, runs into the bathroom, starts flushing them with water. Eventually, it has a good ending. She makes it to the, to the ER, they flush her eyes, and she does not have permanent damage to her eyes. In fact, the doctor said that it was because she had her contacts in that that's what literally saved her and and allowed her to be able to see so that it wasn't permanently damaged. Now, as I heard that story and I was wrestling through 1 Samuel 2, I thought this is a really good way to illustrate what's happening in verse 12 because Eli's sons in this moment have been identified as worthless and they are as worthless as using nail glue in the place of eye drops when you can't see. I can't think of a more demeaning and uh, slamming statement on two men than for the Lord to identify them and just simply say they were worthless. Look to your neighbor real quick and just say, you're worthless. Right? Like that make you feel good, right? That's not a way to build a crowd and to endear friends, is it not? Like for someone to say that, but here's, here's what's so heavy about this. It's not you calling a friend that, it's the Lord identifying two men that are absolutely horrendous and just terrible people. Did you know that terrible people exist in this world too? There are, are, are people that just know what the right thing to do is and they choose to do the wrong thing either way. And so in comes uh, this statement. He says, Elkanah, the dad, goes home and Samuel was there ministering to the Lord, not to feel a need in the Lord's uh, life, like he was lacking something, but he was there learning and growing underneath the, the tutelage of Eli the priest. And it says, Eli's sons, they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
Now, when we read that for the first time, we're really meant to compare this back to the first chapter of Samuel. Well, we remember that same word in the Hebrew was used when Hannah goes before the Lord and cries out to the Lord and asking the Lord not to look past her, but to see her. And remember in verse 16 of of chapter one, she says this, Lord, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and my vexation. And what we see here is this moment where Hannah says, don't deem me worthless. It carries with it a, a little bit more literal translation as, as consider me someone, a daughter or a son of destruction, like capable of, of, of no good things and only calamity. And yet in this moment, back in chapter two, verse 12, he says these two sons, they were worthless men. They were agents of destruction. I think one of the first things that we learn by way of application here is you've got these men whose dad is the the high priest over all of Israel. He's the top religious dog in, in all of the community. And yet we see these two boys who are deeply troubled and are deeply far from God. And what this teaches us this morning is a simple truth that access to someone doesn't necessarily mean intimacy with someone. I can have access to the Father. And I can have access to to books about the Father, but it doesn't mean that I have a relationship with Him or a level of intimacy with Him. I can have access to my, my wife and be near her and in the same room, but it doesn't mean there's emotional and spiritual intimacy that exists there. I can be near my kids and have access to them, but not be in relationship with them. These two men had access to every resource and every tool in the land, yet the Scripture says They did not know God. They didn't know him. It's deeply troubling when we look at this. It's this reminder of what we see in the book of Romans that I think characterizes the posture of these men. And I'm gonna read it for us. In Romans chapter one, verses 20 and 22, Paul says this, he says, and he's describing, not specifically these two sons, but I think this is what characterizes what's happening. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled, therefore, with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and and malice. These two priests who had access to everything yet had no intimacy with their heavenly father or nor their earthly father. Father. Now the text goes on in verse 13 and it describes the posture of these men. And there's something for us to learn in this little interchange. Pick up with me in verse 13 back in 1 Samuel. He says this The custom of the priests with the people was that if any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was still boiling and with a three pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the pot and he would bring out all that the fork brought out up to the priest they would take for themselves. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw meat. 
And if the man said to him, let him burn the fat first and take away as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So here's what God does. He, he sets aside these men to serve in the context of, of ministry and the priesthood. And he allows in scripture for them to take a portion of the offerings that were given. So this is what ultimately fed the priest and those that would work the temple. But yet in this moment, what begins to happen is they begin to receive a little bit and they take a little bit more than they were supposed to. And then after a while, they begin to demand even more. And they enter into this, this slippery slope or this pattern of, of excess and indulging in excess and taking beyond the allotment that the Lord had intended to give. And the scripture then condemns it and says this was wrong. That what you're doing here in the context of ministry in particular is you are using ministry to gain and build this platform for yourself in this moment of, of food and, and you are taking beyond what it is that God has prescribed. And so here's, here's where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. We live in a day and an age of platform building. That in many ways, we end up in these postures of trying to brand churches, and we see this all the time. We are a particular brand, or you market in a certain way, or you do things in a certain way, a niche to sort of corner the market as if we were a business competing with one another. But the truth of, of ministry is this, is that ministry is not intended, church is not intended to build your own and my own personal brand and platform as if we are selling something. It's not a market. It's not a business. And we don't brand in, in those ways. Yes, we have logos that identify certain things and we have vision and values and, and those things matter as they reflect the gospel. But we should never use ministry as a means for personal gain and platform building. And my friends, there are ministers and teachers all around Christendom that are all about building their brand and their name. what we also see in the midst of this is we see them take a little bit and then they take a little bit more and then they take a little bit more and then all of a sudden they're walking in this place of, of excess and overabundance and, and even rebuking people if they don't give them exactly what they want and, and taking things that were not theirs, stealing them in ways and, and overpowering people by force to get what it is that they want. But notice in seven, verse 17, he says, the sin of the young men, it was great in the sight of the Lord. Like God, God it was aware of, of what was happening and, and, and God wanted to speak to those things. And it deeply grieved him and, and it was very great in his eyes for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It reminds me of what my dad used to tell me growing up and, and what I've found to be true today within Christianity and walking with God is that the decisions that we make today will impact the future we live tomorrow. The choices that we make, they have temporal repercussions, but they also have eternal repercussions. 
Walking with Christ in obedience, uh, it, it will cause something in eternity. When we receive him and we trust him and, and we repent of our sins and walk by faith and we receive him as, as our savior and as our king and understand that, we live with that and it has eternal implications for us in the future. The same way that it works in what we would just call our sanctification, being made to look like Jesus. That we make daily little decisions. Did you know that no one accidentally slips into a place of godliness? You don't just accidentally become holy and godly overnight. How that happens is a thousand little choices that you make along the way, that you intentionally walk in a certain direction. You just don't mistakenly become godly and holy and righteous and walk deeply with God. Those things don't just happen but rather through a thousand little choices and a thousand little decisions that we make throughout the days and the weeks and the months, we begin to slowly move, oftentimes completely unaware. But, but I will tell you this, that we don't accidentally just become godly overnight and, and walking with him in deep ways. We, we can, with one decision, with one purposeful action, we can fall away and, and mar the reputation of, of the Christ that we represent and mar our own personal representations and, and our own identity become, can become clouded oftentimes in those things when we're not careful. Because here in this moment, out of these thousands of decisions, the Lord says it is, it is a sin in the sight of the Lord. And he goes back to verse 12. These men were deemed by the Lord in this moment as just worthless. They were worthless. But here's the hope. Look in verse 18. It says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, then Eli, verse 20, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So when they would return to their home, indeed, the Lord had visited Hannah. And listen to this. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So if you remember from several weeks ago, Hannah's in this place of torment, being tormented by the other wife that's in the, in the scene. She, she is full of grief and sorrow. She's crying out to the Lord, give me a child, give me a child. If you would just remember me, not pass me by, not overlook me, but just remember me and, and hear my prayers. And so God gives her Samuel and she fulfills the vow that she made in giving Samuel back to the Lord. And then notice what God does. He doesn't just give Hannah what it is that she asks. He gives her above and beyond what she has. Listen, I think this is predominantly the posture that the Lord has for his children. Oftentimes our prayers are so short-sighted and so limited to certain things. And oftentimes, so many different times, God in his goodness and in his kindness, he gives us beyond what we have. He gives us the extra many times. Sometimes it's just what we need, but more often than not, we figure out in hindsight that it was beyond what we needed in the moment. But notice in verse 18, Samuel was being ministered, was ministering before the Lord and he was set apart. He was clothed a little bit differently than Eli's sons. And the reason why I think the text brings that out for us and it, it sort of makes a distinction is because the, the text wants us to see 
That when God's people are living on mission, we're supposed to be called out and living separately and looked separately and distinctly from the world around us. And sometimes, my friends, that even means in the context of the church. Did you know that sometimes churches can have bad behaviors and bad habits? Did you know that sometimes in churches, uh, godly people will do very ungodly things? And sometimes our testimony and our witness is just before our brothers and sisters, like Samuel was before these people, that though so-and-so may participate in this or do that, I choose not to. I want to be set apart, and I want to stand back and away from that and out of that. And what I think Samuel's testimony here is in this moment is he was just being a faithful presence in a very faithless world and circumstance. Friend, can I tell you that if you want to be countercultural in this world, just being a faithful presence in somebody's life and, and being consistent in your walk as you pursue Jesus and just being faithful in that, in the midst of a culture and a world that is just deteriorating at, at every turn and in every corner, yet in the midst of that, God is preserving his church. And he's equipping and, and he's calling and he's, he's sending out his, his people into the world to be faithful to what he has called them to do as a testimony to his goodness, even if all of those other people around us are not living that way. When I was a student minister, I used to bring in different guys to come into youth camps and disciple nows. And after a while, I, I learn some lessons sort of the hard way, but one of the predominant messages that youth speakers and children's speakers and even college speakers would go out with this sort of the same drumbeat and they would say things like this in sermons. They would say, listen, you go out and you change the world. You can change the entire world. And I understand the place that that comes from. But honestly, as a millennial that has a little bit of anxiety sometimes, it's a little bit daunting for me to think that I can actually change the world. And then how do I go about doing that? And what I began to do with some of these speakers is like, hey, listen, I don't want a message geared towards my students about changing the entire world because that's God's job. What I want a message geared towards is that though they can't change the entire world, they can change what's right in front of them and what's near to them. They can help walk in such a way that people see change in them first and they will focus on their little corner and their little niche of wherever it is that God calls them to be. They can focus on change in the context of the local church, in their community group, in their small group. Like that's where we begin with those things. And those are the things that are everlasting. And those are the things that are eternal. But friend, if God calls you to change the world, he will equip you. But you let him be the one that builds your platform. You let him be the one that elevates you up as he sees fit because he may and he may not. I used to have this prayer when I got into ministry and I would say something like this, God, use me to build your kingdom. And in my mind, I had an idea for what that looks like that I wanted to build God's kingdom, but the truth is that I had to later learn and understand is that I wanted to build God's kingdom the way that I wanted to build God's kingdom. That I had a plan in order to make God's name, his name great, and I had a plan to, to grow the kingdom. And what I later learned in life, and I wish I would have learned in seminary or even before that, is that God is not interested in me building his kingdom my own way, but rather God is only interested in him building his kingdom his way. That regardless of, of my platform or, or your platform, God desires to build his kingdom the way that he wants to build the kingdom. So the posture for the Christian is this, God, what is that way? 
Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to, to say? How do you want me to think? How, how should I feel? Uh, where it is do I need to be looking? How is it that I can be on mission wherever you send me out into my community, in my city, into the nations and, and into my home? Like, like where is the posture and the place so that I can build your kingdom and I can make your name great the way you want to see your name be built great? Verse 22, he goes on. He says, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So Eli does three things I think that are noteworthy, but I think the first thing before we even get to the good things that he did, can we just acknowledge for a moment in the text that Eli is described in this moment as being very old. He's being very old, and yet throughout that old age, he's been hearing about all the things that his sons were doing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so what Eli did as a dad and as a parent is something that we should never do. He settled in to sort of a place of, of apathy and he embraced a posture of passivity towards his family. Rather than going to his sons and, and having the hard conversations, he was more concerned about their platform and their success in the eyes of the world than he was about their success and their platform before the living, true God. That he understood that, that if I go challenge them on these things, that, that they may not be serving in the temple someday, which, which cuts off our, our means and, and doesn't provide for us anymore. And so he just allows it to happen. Well, finally, something gets a hold of him, or the Lord rather gets a hold of him. And he does three things in, this, in these couple of verses. Number one, he calls his sons to give an account. He's like, listen, I'm hearing this. What you're doing is wrong. Why are you doing? I'm hearing these evil things. This is not good. He calls them to give an account. He tells them that their conduct was evil. Laying with women who, who were there to prepare the priests, entering into the holy holies, and they are having physical relations as the ministers, as the priests, before they go in with these women who were there to serve, taking advantage of the vulnerable. And he says, this is evil. Friend, do you know that one of the most often ill-quoted verses taken out of context is people will throw this back at you, or rather it's a statement, judge not lest ye be judged, right? We've heard that. We've said it before. I've thought it. As I was judged, I was like, bro, you judging me? Like, judge yourself first, okay? Like, let's get this in check. But here's the reality of that statement that our culture doesn't often like to hear. We are allowed and permitted to call things evil that the Bible deems evil. When the Bible condemns something, we're allowed to say, hey, that's wrong. Not because I think that, but rather the Bible speaks clearly and, and plainly towards those things. And so we can condemn what the Bible condemns, but what we must be careful of is condemning things that the Bible is silent to or condemning things that the Bible uh, doesn't speak to with, with great clarity. That's where we oftentimes find ourselves in the midst of, of hot water. But he tells them their conduct was evil and he explains the wickedness in their deeds. And he says, what you are doing is wrong. Verse 25 goes on and he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. 
But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? For they would not listen to the voice of their father. And then notice what God's response is. For it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. Now, some might read that and go, well, God, what a terrible God to, to put these men to death. But, but let's remember the context. This was behavior habitually that went on for years and years and years unchecked. It's almost the opposite. Finally, God did something. And, and we know throughout the book of Psalms, these descriptors that David gives us about him being loving and, and, and slow to anger and full of compassion, like he endures as he watches this. And then finally, finally, at this point, once confronted with the reality by their father, it says the Lord then puts them to death because the Lord is a just God that must deal with sin according to Scripture. Verse 26, but the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Verses 27 through the end of the chapter really just enter into a conversation that the Lord begins to have with Eli. And, and the best way that I know to summarize it is just to look at verse 31 because this is sort of the totality of the conversation and summarizes it. He says, behold, the days are coming. This is the Lord talking. When I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. You are gonna lose your position of, of privilege. You're gonna lose your position of authority. It's done. And the Lord does it. But when we back out of this scene, in 1 Samuel 2, there's a couple of things that I think are noteworthy for us on the broader picture of things. I said in the very beginning that, that access doesn't necessarily mean intimacy with, with a person or rather more specifically with, with God. And to sort of borrow from one of my favorite books of all time, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, I think the lesson here is this idea that these two men, these two priests, and Eli really included with this, were guilty of knowing about God, but not actually knowing God. And so that's the challenge for us this morning as a people, not being found guilty of knowing about him and having information and serving in different ways and reading all the books and parsing Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and reading theological German or whatever it is that you're into. We can know all kinds of things about God informationally, but not really ever know him. And unfortunately for this family, it cost them the lives of the two sons and it cost Eli and his descendants and, and they would become adversarial. And we see this, we're gonna see this play out throughout the book of Samuel where ultimately God fulfills that promise. Friends, don't be guilty of knowing about God and not actually knowing him. Being in communion with him and having a relationship with him, being one in, in Christ as he fills you up through his spirit and you walk with him and you serve him and, and you honor him. But I think, too, here in this moment, by way of application, you've got the, the context of the temple and, and, the, and the, the men who had been entrusted with that and the people to hold them account really got, got stuck and comfortable in their ways. And they would take some here and they would take some here. And, and their whole method of, of doing things, if, if they would have changed that behavior... It would have disrupted all of their power. It would have disrupted all of their influence. They were married to the method that they found themselves in. And that method in particular was, was very sinful and deemed deeply unworthy by God. And I think the application for the church there in this moment is that when we become to love the method, 
the mission is the thing that will die. When we love the method more than we love the mission, that ultimately this is why many churches uh, end up fracturing and this is why people fall apart uh, and, and walk away is because we become so wedded to the method in which we're doing things and people are changing, culture's changing. Our message never changes. The mission never changes. That we must not be married to the method every single time. Only the mission that's the only thing that demands our allegiance. It's the only thing that we walk through. And these two men were not walking on mission, but rather got comfortable and, and with this idea of, of they were going to do what they want and walk in sin. Friends, let it not be true of our church. But if we circle back to that statement about not being guilty of, of knowing about God rather than know, knowing God, I think the full circle of that sentiment that exists here that these two priests didn't understand and Eli didn't seem to get either is informed by a passage of scripture found in 1 Corinthians 8.3 where Paul says this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So you can know about God, facts, you can know theological truths and doctrines, but what we're calling to is a more of an intimacy in knowing God and walking with him. But the full circle of that is an understanding that not only do I know God, know about him and know him, but it's also the fact that God knows me. The creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence, who all things were created for him, by him, and through him. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, whose, whose sins were slain for the entire world. This God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I'm known by him. And so he, he knows this morning your, your heartaches. He knows your frustrations. He knows your disappointments. He knows what you're agonizing over. He knows what you're fretting over. He knows what you're worrying over. He knows your anguish and your grief. He understands all of those things. Friends, you are known by that God who brings things into existence out of nothing, who creates things just out of the word of his mouth and speech, and then they are. We get to know him, but I think more importantly is the truth that we're known by him. All of our imperfections and all the good that he gives to us and the way he changes us, that God of the universe, he knows you today. Scripture tells us elsewhere that by faith in Christ, repenting of my sins, that I get brought into his kingdom. See, the gospel is not a, a story about this meek little God that, that you get to invite into your heart and into your life and then you get to carry him wherever you want to. But the gospel is a much bigger story. Really, the gospel is not about him coming into your life, but rather the gospel is more about God bringing you into his kingdom because his story is infinitely more interesting and compelling and eternal than your story. It is way better to be along for the journey of what God is doing rather than trying to bring God into my short-sightedness and my little myopic vision of what I want my life to be and saying, listen, God, I wanna be about building your kingdom in the way that you want your kingdom to be brought about. So would you today just use me? And would you help me see that? Friends, I want you to see that this morning, that the call of the gospel is him bringing you into his 
story for service. Him bringing you into his story so that you would flourish as a human being, that you would do what is best, uh, in, not in your own eyes, but in the way that God would deem those things to be worthy. Would you hear that this morning and would you receive it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that, Lord, you'd help us wrestle with that truth today. That you are a God that is much greater and grander than we can imagine, that we can comprehend. And that God, because of Christ reconciling us to you, we can know you, but more importantly, we are known by you. And so I pray, Father, that you would just help us rest in that truth. Help us lean into that. And help us respond in these next few moments as we sing and come to the altar. For you are the only one who is worthy of our praise and adoration, of our affection, of our time, of our focus and our energy. For we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.